All right, well, if you have a Bible, Book of Proverbs. Go ahead and open up to the Book of Proverbs. Uh, we're introducing here to today a new study in the Book of Proverbs, and, and I am excited about it. Proverbs has long been one of my favorite books. It was one of the, uh, right, I don't know how many of you have ever practiced this, but the whole proverb a day keeps the devil away sort of thing, right? Uh, I learned that from a very young age, and Proverbs is uniquely uh, really presented in that regard, not only in, in its chapter divisions, right? The idea is had 31 chapters. And so if you read chapter a day, then you get through the book of Proverbs every month and you make that a regular practice. Uh, one of my favorite professors in my undergrad years, Les Olala, uh, he committed much of his, his life to memorizing the book of Proverbs. And he was always a big proponent. Uh, he would quote Proverbs left and right. He lived it. It just oozed out of him. And he, uh, I had read Proverbs much, you know, in my high school years, but listening to Les Olala was really encouraging to, to just give myself to the book consistently. And it has shown in, in my life just to see how practical and helpful it is, uh, not only in my own life, but in counseling situations and scenarios. The book of Proverbs is immensely practical, and it is given to us for that purpose. And so our goal today is to really try to introduce the book, think big picture, uh, and our, our really big theme, which, which I would argue is the theme of the book of Proverbs, is of course wisdom, but wisdom, my favorite definition for biblical wisdom is skill for living, skill for living. And so that's kind of our subtitle, if you will, to this study that we are about to embark upon. And yet today is going to be largely introductory. My goal is to talk through these big points in kind of our, our introduction as we think through uh, the background to this book. We try to familiarize ourselves with its contents and then jump into it week by week in the months to come. But first, I want to introduce you to the concept of wisdom literature. You may or may not be familiar with that term, uh, but the book of Proverbs definitely falls within that genre, if you will of wisdom literature. Next, I want to give you just a basic overview of Proverbs. In other words, I want to help you become familiar with the seams of the book, the major movements, the major parts and components to the book, and how we will, of course, approach it in our study of the book, because this is uh, classically known as one of the most difficult books to, to, uh, to teach and preach through because of the way it's organized. And so we will work through uh, just how we will approach it uh, as we work our way through it. Third, I want to just consider the practicality of Proverbs, the reason why we're studying this. There, the book of Proverbs is so incredibly helpful and practical because it forms, if you will, a very tight grid of uh, information and wisdom that helps you discern the, the best possible way to live life. In other words, like I said, the, the, the subtitle to our series is Skill for Living. Skill for Living. And the reality is life... Scripture often likens life to a, uh, a voyage and how important it is for us to navigate the difficulties of life and this concept of, of all the dangers that is about us. And, you know, we'll, we'll develop this more as we work our way through. But just recently when my family and I were on vacation, we went up to uh, the Oregon coast and we spent a little time chasing lighthouses uh, over in, in Washington but that area where the Columbia River dumps into the ocean is, it has been called historically the graveyard of the Pacific because of the immense dangers that are there. Hundreds and hundreds of ships have been shipwrecked in that area, 
right? Yeah, you're, you're shaking. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about, right? In fact, there was one of the state parks had a shipwreck that has been beached. It's like 100 years old. I think it, it was like 190-something. Uh, so it's over 100 years old when this ship uh, was was wrecked, but the, the wreckage is still there, a portion of it. Like the, I think it's the, the bow or the stern. I think it was the bow. It's still sticking up out of the sand, and you can walk over to it and check it out. And you know, But the reality is... The, in order to try and navigate that shore, that's why they came up with a pretty elaborate system of lighthouses in order to help these mariners to make their way safely through that, those treacherous waters. Well, the book of Proverbs is very much like that. It's immensely practical. It touches upon every area of life. Every conceivable you know, life situation is dealt with uh, either in, in uh, statement or in principle in the book of Proverbs. And so it is in many ways, again, your handbook for skill in living, to learn to live life with skill. And so we'll talk about just the practicality of it and why we're studying it. But then we'll, we'll talk specifically about understanding a proverb and why uh, God chose to give us wisdom in this uh, venue, in this sort of uh, genre, again, if you will. And then we'll talk briefly about the road to wisdom. In other words, uh, we'll spend much more time developing that in the next several weeks as we work our way through the book. But just generally speaking, there are several milestones along the way that the book of Proverbs points to that if you want to become a wise person, which, by the way, the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs is going to plead with you saying, please pursue wisdom, right? Become a wise person. But nonetheless, it's that road to how do we become wise. I'll sketch that for you. And then, of course, we'll spend uh, time examining it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, sir. seeing the wisdom of it. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. There's a personal testimony. And, and, and I mean, that's going to be, and I'll mention that a little bit uh, later in the hour, but that's one of the things that makes Proverbs so fun is, is how personal it is, how uh, we can illustrate it. I mean, there's a number of Proverbs that in my Bible, I have a person's name written next to a proverb. Do you know what I'm saying? Because it's like that proverb is like the snapshot epitome of that person's life. And when I read that proverb or I think of that person, I think of that proverb. And it's like, or it, it might be a historic occurrence, a historic character. Uh, it might be, you know, a character from literature, whatever. But the book of Proverbs is so practical and it touches upon, like I said, every area of life. And it's so powerful, as you just testified to. 
Uh, and the, and the, that's what I, I, I want to help you understand, not just today to get you excited about studying the book, to get you, if you haven't already, to become you know, very uh, regular in reading the book of Proverbs and just immersing yourself in it, but then just trying to set the course for you know, our study ahead so that you're, you're excited about what God has in store for us here. Yeah. Yeah, just to back up what you're saying, um, there's this guy I found on YouTube. His name is Michael Franzese. He was a former uh, captain in the mafia in New York City. And when he was in prison, um, he was in solitary confinement at one point and uh, just not doing well emotionally, spiritually, mentally. And a prison guard brought him a Bible. And at first he didn't want to read it, but then he thought, well, you know, he, and he actually chucked it across his cell. And then he thought, well, I don't need God mad at me too. <laughs> and so he opened Amen. it randomly. And he opened it up to the book of Proverbs, and the first one he read was, when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, even his enemies are at peace with him. And he thought, oh. <laughs> He's like, wait a minute, that I'm might be a message from God. Yeah, praise the Lord. And so he just started reading it. I mean, he had Amen. no time on his hands, so he just devoured it. And he didn't immediately give his life to the Lord. I mean, he, he decided to explore all kinds of venues, I mean, he, or avenues. Uh, he... Uh, but he came back, he kept coming back to Proverbs. Amen. Bible, and eventually he gave his life to the Lord and he quit the mafia. Uh, praise the Lord. I'm glad to hear the end of that story. He did quit the mafia. Yeah. <laughs> Yep, praise the Lord. But that's, I mean, that's one of the things that, I mean, I'm going to encourage as we work our way through is, you know, just your interaction. And you, because the book of Proverbs is very thought provoking, it will, you will have thoughts and stories, memories you know, that are going to come to mind that are going to be like, wow, like that truth, that proverb, whatever we just read and talked about, wow, like I can think of a perfect illustration. And that's kind of the whole point, right? And I, and I encourage you to do that, you know, exactly what we're doing. Just say, hey, you know, this happened to me or this happened to me or I knew this situation. And because that's the whole point of the book of Proverbs is to get you thinking through the practicality of it and to see how applicable it is to everyday life. Uh, it's remarkable in that regard. And so, so let's begin by just introducing this concept of wisdom literature. All right. So again, if you have your Bible, we'll, we'll be back and forth. We're gonna, I'm going to try to just immerse you, you in Scripture, both in and out you know, of the book of Proverbs. But let me draw your attention briefly to Jeremiah 18.18 18, as I define wisdom literature. Now, the Hebrew Old Testament, one scholar observed, is divided into three primary chunks or sections, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And these three divisions of your Old Testament answer to the three groups that were common in antiquity, namely leaders, priests, uh, you know, a prophet, and a wise person. In other words, the priest, prophet, and wise person were the leaders of the society. They were the recognized leaders. And we see that in several places, but very succinctly in Jeremiah 18, 18, where the text says, and uh, then said they, Come and let us devise devices against Jeremiah, for the law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. Come, let us smite him with a tongue and, you know, that he, and not give heed to any of his words, etc. We could go to a number of passages where we see that very simple threefold division, where in Hebrew society, these were your revered offices. These were the leaders of the society. And so this, the, the, uh, what we're looking at is the, the, that middle one, counsel from the wise. 
Now, the wise, or what you might have heard the term, the, the, the term sage, was a professional class of learned elite in antiquity. We still have them today. We just call them by different names. But it's the quote-unquote professionals, right? It's those people, right? Uh, the smart people. Uh, but the idea is the sage was a professional class of learned elite who counseled kings. We could go to a number of passages on this. Second Samuel 16, for instance, is Ahithophel. Remember this? It says that his counsel was as if it was an oracle from God. And he was the guy who actually, do you remember this? Why did he defect from David in order to support the revolt of Absalom. You remember this? Because Ahithophel was the father of Bathsheba. Remember that? And uh, if you don't remember that, then go read your Bible, right? <laughs> but uh, Bathsheba, right, might ring a bell. Uh, but the idea is, you know, David commits adultery with Bathsheba, murders her husband Uriah. Ahithophel is the father. And so he will later... He bides his time, if you will. He will defect from David and he will give his counsel to Absalom. And Absalom's greatest downfall is not listening to the wisdom of Ahithophel, uh, which is actually what brought about, you know, that the defeat. But anyways, the point is, that's another story for another time. But the point is, it illustrates well the idea of a counselor. And this, this was, again, a, a professional class of learned elite that was typically associated with the courts of old. Now, as we come to the book of Proverbs, what's interesting is that Solomon is a combination of these two or two out of these three offices in that he was a royal sage. In other words, he lived uh, 700 years before Socrates, Plato, or Aristotle, but he was not only a political leader, but he was wiser than all of his counselors. Now, did he have counselors? Yeah, we read about him later when his son Rehoboam won't listen to him, right? But... Solomon was uh, incredibly wise. In fact, the Bible describes him as the wisest man who ever lived. So Solomon is the author of the book of Proverbs. If you're not familiar with that, Proverbs 1.1 nails that down for us. The Bible says this, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. Now, if you don't know much about Solomon, let me just quickly catch you up to speed. Solomon was the son of King David. David's the most famous king in Hebrew history. Solomon is his son. Solomon received his wisdom from a variety of avenues. First, he received from his own father. We'll make a bigger deal of this later, but let me just read Proverbs 4, uh, first few verses. Solomon says this, he says, Hear you children the instruction of a father, and attend to no understanding, for I give you good doctrine. Forsake you not my law, for I was my father's son, tender and the only beloved in the sight of my mother. He taught me also and said unto me, Let your heart retain my words, keep my commandments, and live you know, etc. In other words, by Solomon's own testimony, he was taught by his father, David. We won't go there for sake of time, but if you were to go to 1 Kings chapter 2, first few verses, as well as 1 Chronicles, there's actually several chapters in 1 Chronicles uh, where David is speaking to his son Solomon. But I do got to read this one because it's so good. But 1 Chronicles 28, 9, this is uh, in essence a one verse summary of David's wisdom that he's trying to pass on to Solomon. He says this, First Chronicles 28, 9, And thou, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a perfect heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all the hearts and understands all the imaginations of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found of you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. 
Now that is, again, a, a one word or one verse summary that is so uh, beautifully condensed version, if you will, of what will become the book of Proverbs. If you recall our study uh, in, in the book of Psalms, we talked about this a little bit, that Solomon not only received wisdom through his father, as these passages record, but he ultimately received it from God. First Kings chapter 3 records this uh, dream that he has from God where God gives Solomon the closest thing the Bible comes to a blank check. He gives Solomon the, the freedom to ask anything and God will give it to him. Well, I, I argue from our Psalter series, if you recall, that it may well be an answer to David's prayer for Solomon, but Solomon has enough wisdom to ask for wisdom. In other words, when God gives him that blank check and he says, all right, what do you want? Solomon has, has enough wisdom to ask for wisdom. And so God gives to Solomon a supernatural wisdom, which makes him the wisest man who ever lived. Now, again, I argue that this is probably in answer to David's prayer for Solomon because that is recorded in Psalm 72. We won't rehash that for sake of time, but in Psalm 72, it's the prayer. It tells us in the last verse of that Psalm that it's the prayer of David, son of Jesse. And he's praying for God to give wisdom to his son so that his son would know the law of God, be able to discern right and wrong, and therefore lead the nation in the way of wisdom. God answered that prayer. And God gave to Solomon this incredible wisdom, which he then used to rule his kingdom. We could go on. Uh, in, in fact, go ahead and pop over there. For sake of context, this may be helpful. Go to 1 Kings chapter uh, 3 and 4. Here in a couple weeks, I'm going to come back and develop some thoughts from chapter 3 of the book of 1 Kings, where it describes his wisdom, right? Because it says that God gives to Solomon supernatural wisdom, but then it illustrates that supernatural wisdom with a classic case. Do you remember the two harlots, right, that are both claiming uh, the child to be theirs, and no one can figure out what to do until it's, the case is heard before King Solomon? And Solomon has what has come to be known a very famous right, judgment, verdict. What is it? You remember this? He says, bring me a sword and I'll cut the baby in half. And you're like, what in the world? But then when the two women hear that, uh, you know, that solution posed by Solomon, then the mother who's you know, not the true mother of the child says, all right, good idea. Divide it in half. It won't be yours or mine. But the true mother says, oh, no, 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 don't divide the baby in half. Give her the child, but spare its life. And that mother instinct was revealed. And Solomon says, that's the true mom. Give the baby to her. And it says the whole kingdom hears of this and fears Solomon. We're going to come back to that because it's, it's a very helpful illustration of what we will, here in a couple of weeks, we'll spend a whole session defining the fear of the Lord, which is one of the big themes in the book of Proverbs. But that illustration or that narrative illustrates that concept that the people started to realize the wisdom of Solomon, that it was so, he was so incredibly wise, the people were not going to be able to get away with anything. You could not pull the wool over the eyes of this king. He was going to see right through you because of this supernatural wisdom that God gave and his ability to then make absolute just decisions. And that's why the people feared, because they couldn't, they, you know, the government couldn't become corrupt, not with this guy in charge, right? And, and so that is in an answer to what David prayed for in Psalm 72. 
Now, again, as we work our way through the narrative, if you're familiar, uh, let me just read that passage I have there up on the screen. First Kings chapter four, verse 29 to 34 says this. It says, God gave, and God gave, and it's kind of a summary of what he said earlier in chapter three. But it says, and God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding exceeding much and largeness of heart, even as the sand that is on the seashore. And the idea and we'll come to defining wisdom a little bit more in a moment, but the largeness of heart idea is probably talking about his IQ, his intellect. Like he had an enormous capacity for recall and an enormous curiosity to look into every realm of knowledge. And yet he had a supernatural wisdom and ability to discern you know, right from wrong and apply it to everyday situations. Verse 30 says, And Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the children of the East country. Uh, these were, again, the East being Mesopotamia, renowned for its wisdom, but also, it says, all the wisdom of Egypt. There's, so in other words, East and West, from one end of the earth to the other, Solomon exceeded all in his wisdom. Verse 31, for he was wiser than all men. Then it even names a couple of guys, Ethan the Ezraite. We have a psalm. Do you realize? Psalm 89 is written by Ethan the Ezraite. We have a psalm from this wise man, uh, as well as Heman. He writes Psalm 88. But Heman, and then we don't know these other guys, uh, Kalkol, Darda, and Mahol, but they were known in Solomon's day, and Solomon exceeded them all, so much so that it says in the end of verse 31, his fame was in all nations round about. And he spake 3,000 proverbs. We have several of those. We don't have all of them preserved. The book of Proverbs doesn't contain all of them, but we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. But he spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. And he spake of the trees, from the cedar tree that is in Lebanon, even into the hyssop that springs out of the wall. In other words, he was interested in botany and the natural sciences. But it says, he also uh, spake of beasts and fowl and creeping things and of fishes. He says, and there came of all people to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth, earth which had heard of his wisdom. All right, this is the guy whom uh, you know, we're talking about as we discover his writings and the wisdom that God gave to him that he in turn gives to us here in the book of Proverbs. Now, if you know much more, and I'll just briefly summarize, but because Solomon asked for wisdom rather than wealth or you know, an empire that would triumph over its, his, its enemies, etc., then God actually blessed Solomon, not only with supernatural wisdom, but he also became the wealthiest man of his day. Uh, he established the most powerful empire of his day. And you can read about that in 1 Kings chapters 1 through 10. And we'll dip into that from time to time because of how pertinent it is as background for the book of Proverbs. There's a lot of, of parallels there. So where appropriate, we'll come back and point that out. Now, the book of Proverbs itself was composed as a sort of wisdom curriculum, quote unquote, by Solomon. And he designed it as a textbook for the instruction of his son. Now, according to scripture, we only have one recorded son of Solomon. And he may have had other sons. It's very probable that he did. But only one is discussed in the Bible, and his name is Rehoboam. Rehoboam will become the king after Solomon. And the book of Proverbs is essentially Solomon as the wisest man who ever lived, as a king sitting upon the throne of Israel, wanting to prepare his young son to take over as the next king. And so he is charging Rehoboam with the wisdom necessary to be a godly man and a godly king. And so he's going to give Rehoboam all that is involved in growing into maturity, whether it's spiritually, morally, or culturally. He's going to try and make Rehoboam the polished, kingly, godly monarch that he was you know, supposed to be. 
In other words, if one was to follow the wisdom that God lays down through the book of Proverbs, then you become the sort of individual that God would want you to be. You're evidencing God's wisdom, skill for living. Now, of course, as you work your way through uh, the history of Israel, that's one of the grand ironies, is not only Solomon's own folly, and we'll talk about that, but Rehoboam's own folly. In other words, uh, I like to say that, you know, as, as Solomon was putting together these masterful lectures that are contained in the book of Proverbs, Rehoboam slept through a few of the lessons. You know what I'm saying? He wasn't listening that closely, and he actually becomes the epitome of a foolish king, uh, according to the, the history of Israel. But nonetheless, that's the purpose behind the book of Proverbs. Now, the book of Proverbs will also tell us that most of the Proverbs were written by Solomon himself. We read that just a moment ago. Proverbs 1.1 tells us that these are the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. But the text also tells us that he compiled wisdom from others. For instance, if we were to go to chapter 22, verse 17, let me just read that briefly. Proverbs 22.17 says, Bow down your ear and hear the words of the wise and apply your heart unto my knowledge. Something very similar in Proverbs 24, verse 23. He says, these things also belong to the wise. And then on he goes. Chapter 30, uh, in verse 1, he's quoting the words of Agur, the son of Yaqeh. Now, we'll come back to that. There's a bit of debate on who that is. We don't really know for sure. Some suggest that it's a code name for perhaps David and Solomon himself, but we can't prove that. At face value, the text simply names someone else that is the author of this wisdom, and Solomon is merely compiling it. In fact, if you would go backwards to Proverbs chapter 25, notice verse 1 with me. Proverbs 25.1 says, These are also Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied out. In other words, the, you know, the, the uh, passage from Proverbs 25 through chapter 29 those are still Proverbs of Solomon, but they were not published in his lifetime. They weren't part of the quote-unquote original wisdom curriculum that he would have uh, written for his son Rehoboam. Rather, it was way later. A later king of Israel, Hezekiah, who was a godly king, who had an interest in God's wisdom and you know the history of Israel's wisest king, he went back to compile more of those 3,000 you know, Proverbs that Solomon uh, gave us, and he published another section of the book of Proverbs. He compiled it. Now, we won't get off into this. I've given whole lectures to this in the past underneath the subject of bibliology, but this is actually, that Proverbs 25.1 is one of the most fascinating verses in the Bible to me in the regard that it helps us gain insight into how the Bible itself came into being. Uh, it's remarkable. And in fact, if you were with us in our Isaiah study, we spent a whole session talking through that, the development of the Old Testament canon and the idea of the, the stages of development. And here's one of the crystal clear historic references to that. Yeah, you got a thought? This is interesting. I read this not long ago, but about Hezekiah. It's a little bit of a rabbit trail here, but I read in 2 Kings 18.5, that says, he trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him, among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. That's right. So <clears throat> I like to summarize this way, right? After you have David, right? He's like the premier king of Israel. Um, after him, read First and Kings just consistently. More often than not, the kings are, well, first they're given a, you know, either a thumbs up or thumbs down rating. 
right? They either did that which was good in the eyes of the Lord and that which was evil. But even those that, were, that did good are then typically compared to whether or not they matched up to David. Well, then you only have out of, you know, because the northern kingdom, remember, has no good kings, not a single good king in the north. The southern kingdom is half and half, half good kings, half bad kings. The good kings, half, you know, the half of the kings that were good, only three of them are actually compared with David. And Hezekiah is one of them, right? You have Hezekiah, remember the others? Josiah and Jehoshaphat. So Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, and Josiah. Josiah even, depending on how you read the verse, may well be compared favorably as surpassing David. Um, And same with Hezekiah in that verse. But what's interesting is that not all, but, but several of those good kings, there's one particular quality that is singled out about them that makes them a you know, distinctly good king. And I'd encourage you to just search First and Second Kings. You know, I, I, love that. I love history, so those are fascinating portions of the scripture for me. But then it's immensely practical when it comes to illustrating history in the lives of those kings. And, but Hezekiah, the thing that made him stand out was his faith in God that he had a faith, a trust in God that surpassed any other king. And it's so interesting. You know, Solomon, the wisest king who ever lived, right? Uh, Moses, the meekest man who ever lived. Hezekiah, the guy who has more faith than anyone else. And it's so interesting uh, to, to just, you know, work your way through the scripture and, and come up or, or just notice, not that you have to come up with it because the text gives it to you, but find those characteristics that are labeled where one particular character is said, hey, out of all the men in history or characters in the Bible, this person epitomizes this quality more than anyone else. And that's absolutely true. Uh, and so that's, and, and we see that. Hezekiah was a godly king. And like I said, I, you know, it's a rabbit trail to jump off into it too far, but I love Hezekiah. And uh, Hezekiah did a lot to try and turn the nation of Israel around he went through a series of reforms. He tried to get rid of idolatrous practices in the land. He tried to reinstitute temple practices. But according to this text, one of the things that Hezekiah worked so hard to do to bring the nation back to God was to invest in the scripture, to be sure that it was recorded, it was disseminated, it was remembered. And that is, boy, that's an interesting lesson for our time and place in our day, right? Is, is the power, as you mentioned, of the scripture itself. Just putting God's word in the hands of people. It does stuff, right? I mean, God works through his word. It's a powerful thing. And Hezekiah realized that. So, but it also points out one of the seams in the book of Proverbs. So let me zoom out and help you understand big thought flow through the book. In other words, if you were to zoom out, look at the, you know, the the 30,000 foot view overview of the book of Proverbs. Let's look at the contours, the hinges, the seams, if you will, the major movements and components of the book. The first seven verses of the book of Proverbs is basically your introduction, right? He's telling you who wrote it, why it was written, what's the purpose behind it. We'll get into that next week uh, or next time. Next week, I'll actually be in Nephi uh, filling in for my dad. But next time we jump into the book of Proverbs, we'll look at that paragraph, verses one to seven. uh, And that might take us, you know, a week or two. But then we'll see that introduction introduces the first major portion of the book, and that's Proverbs 1 to 9. Chapters 1 to 9 is what you might call Solomonic reflections on wisdom. 
This is a series of what some scholars call wisdom songs or parental lectures, if you will. You all remember that, right? When your parents used to lecture you. Now I'm a parent and I've got a lot of lectures. You know what I'm saying? My, pray for my children. <laughs> but this is exactly what Proverbs 1 to 9 is. is it's a collection of lectures, uh, wise counsel, advice that Solomon is trying to give to his son Rehoboam. And the, ba- the big you know, picture idea in these, these first nine chapters is the general subject of wisdom versus folly. It's praising wisdom. He's trying to motivate Rehoboam to be a man who pursues wisdom. And he's pointing out the foolishness of, the, of folly. And he's trying to uh, get Rehoboam to run from that and to recognize you know, the, the, uh, where that leads. So this section consists of extended thought units. They're longer chapters with clear thought flow. We're going to work our way through these chapters with just like we would any other book. We're just going to exposit those chunks because they're written as speeches. And there's long sections that go all together in one big thought flow. So we'll teach it as such. So it, it consists of these extended thought units composed of several verses. But this contrasts much, uh, you know, most of the other portions of the book. In other words we'll see from chapter 10 on that it breaks down into individual proverbs where one verse is a standalone proverb. Like you can isolate one verse regardless of context and that one verse stands on its own as a proverb. But the first nine chapters is not like that. You have to look at the verses in context. It's one big thought flow. All right, so this section is cast in the form of a father-son admonition. In other words, it's a father speaking to his son. The phrase, my son, my son, my son, my son, shows up over a dozen times in this section. All right, and this is Solomon speaking to Rehoboam. So there's where we get that idea of it's a formal wisdom curriculum. Now, again, throughout this section, the father pleads with the son to consider all the advantages that wisdom offers, as well as warns him of the very real dangers that he faces in such things as sexual wickedness, bad company, etc. He will dive into a bunch of different topics. Not all topics are addressed in these first nine chapters because he'll get to those more specific topics later in the individual Proverbs section from chapter 10 on. But nonetheless... He's giving his son uh, this, this urgent advice. Now, again, most scholars find, you know, in other words, how do you subdivide this section? Most find around 12 to 15 songs or, you know, lectures in this section. We're going to subdivide it into 12. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll just, you know, see what kind of time we can make as we work our way through them. But this, this is, uh, that first nine chapters is a dramatically different, you know, layout than the, the, the rest of the book. So what changes? Well, from chapter 10, verse 1 to chapter 22 and verse 16, this is a collection of miscellaneous proverbs from Solomon. It tells us that. And this consists of 375 proverbs in that section. And it primarily, these pro- proverbs are primarily expressed in, a, in two line sentences. Uh, or this is also known as a couplet. It's a balanced uh, you know, sentence where you have two parts. More often than not, at least in this section, the couplets are antithetical. In other words, it'll give you a contrast between a wise person and a foolish person. Here's, you know, in other words, Proverbs is very Hebraic in its thought form. And I say this often, uh, maybe not often enough, but what do I mean by Hebraic thought? Well, Hebraic thought is basically the idea that through comparison and contrast, they bring clarity. 
Comparison and contrast brings clarity. In other words, when they're trying to give you something good, then it'll, it'll give us a positive you know, comparison with something positive. When it's bad, then there's a contrast. And then the, that comparison contrast, that on the one hand and then on the other, when you understand the balance of Proverbs, my wife and I were just talking about this yesterday uh, as we were driving, is I'm, I'm just over and over again stunned by the book of Proverbs that when you compile all the particular Proverbs on one subject, it's a remarkable balance that these Proverbs are going to say, well, on the one hand, do this, but on the other hand, do this. And if you're not careful, at times it seems contradictory. You're like, wait a minute, how can I do both of those things simultaneously? Well, that's the whole point of a proverb. We'll talk about that in a few more moments uh, or get to it next time (laughs) if I run out of time. But the point is the comparison contrast. It's trying to get you to have a balanced, skillful life when it comes to making moral choices. But in order to balance you, that's the whole idea of the comparison contrast. And there's times where it's like, whoa, those seem to be opposite ideas. Well, no, not necessarily. You hold them you know, in tension with one another. And there's many illustrations of that throughout the book. So we'll work our way through it. Now, again, this section from chapter 10, 1 to 22, uh, 16, this section is virtually impossible to recognize any continuity of thought or developing of an idea. In other words, there are some commentaries and, and uh, teachers, preachers that will still try to approach this section, uh, you know, in an expositional format. In other words, they take it paragraph by paragraph. Um, I myself have just not been convinced of that. I don't think it's laid out that way. Rather, I think it is really meant to be a, an anthology, a collection of Proverbs. And so there's a wide range of subjects in this section. And from business ethics to how to conduct one's life and affairs, social propriety, common sense sayings, family relationships, multiple subjects are going to be addressed. It's a very practical section, and it stresses the profits or rewards of right living. And what we're going to do when we get to that section is not going to handle it paragraph by paragraph because I, don't, I think it's verse by verse. And so we're going to deal with it more topically when we get to that section. And, you, and you'll get a flavor of that even as we work our way through some of the sections of you know, chapters 1 to 9. But we'll, we'll deal with them topics. So where we'll compile, say, a dozen Proverbs on that one primary subject, whether it's marriage, parenting, finances, sex, anything. And we will look at what the Proverbs says on those issues. But we'll align all the Proverbs that have to do with that subject and deal with them all at once. Does that make sense? That's how we're going to approach that section. Now, I already mentioned this, but chapter 22, 17 to 24, 22 is uh, the words of the wise. This is probably, these are Proverbs that were not original to Solomon. Uh, There's some debate to that. He may have been the originator to them, but the text itself seems to evidence that he's compiling the wisdom of others. And there's a lot of critical debate regarding the origin of this section, but it's best seen as composed of wisdom sayings and discourses of Solomon or gathered by him from other teachers of his day. For instance, the ones that we just read about in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 31 to 33, there's a number of uh, people that are named there. And it may well be wisdom you know, that originates with those other sources, but Solomon is compiling it. And he's trying to get that wisdom uh, you know, dis- recorded and disseminated. So again, as the teacher composes a wisdom curriculum for his son, he includes wisdom from others. Most of the Proverbs in this section are known as tetra stitches. And, this is, and that just means there's four parts. So instead of a couplet where there's two lines, there's actually four lines. So many of these, uh, this is huge. When we get there, we'll talk about it. But there's many Proverbs 
Like I struggled with this when I was a kid and I read through that and I was like, and I didn't realize that there are, the two verses go together. Like there's four lines to them. And so like I'd read the one verse and I'm like, what in the world is it talking about? Because it's not a complete thought. You have to read the two verses together and now you have a complete thought. All right, so like that's where there's a difference in, and we'll get to it, uh, but that's, it's recorded differently in that section. Now, by the time, again, we get to chapter 24, verse 23 to 34, it's another mini collection of words uh, from the wise that Psalm is collecting. That section is, is primarily talking about a proper judicial ethic and a proper work ethic. And so Solomon will compile these sayings from that, in that section. But then we enter that section from chapter 25 to chapter 29, which is the miscellaneous Proverbs of Solomon that was collected underneath Hezekiah, right? That's Hezekiah's efforts. And like I said, uh, we, we won't get lost into that. I've talked about it before, but it's such a fascinating verse. I'd love to talk about it again at some point. It's just the composition of the scripture, how God guided the process of canonization. Remarkable, remarkable. But, but this is a great verse in, in describing that. But then we get to chapter 30, 30, uh, verse one, we read that a moment ago, but that's a collection of the words of Agur. Now, who is this guy? We don't know. We do not know who this guy is. Some have suggested that Agur is a pseudonym for Solomon himself. Uh, Agur means collector and Yake means pious one. So some think this, this is simply pseudonyms or code names for David and Solomon. Uh, again, we, we just can't be sure on that. We don't know. But nonetheless, this entire chapter is an oracle. It's one big thought unit. Chapter 30 all goes together. So we'll deal with that, you know, as a thought flow. But the, in chapter, the entire chapter is an oracle, a complete thought unit built around a central theme, uh, namely the destructive foolishness of wicked living. That's what that chapter is all about. And again, we'll draw special attention to the numerical proverbs that appear in that section, right? Uh, these, these, you know, three things the Lord hates, yea, four, uh, or et cetera. And we'll, we'll talk about that when we get there. Then, uh, last but not least, we have chapter 31, the words of Lemuel. Now, Lemuel was a non-Israelite king, probably, uh, but he may well, because the Hebrew word may well be um, uh, a Hebrew king that, or a Hebrew prince or something that, we did, that is not recorded in the scripture, but he's probably a non-Israelite king whose wisdom instruction was included by Hezekiah. Uh, this, this is the only section of Proverbs addressed to a king where the wisdom which Lemuel's mother taught him. And this is fascinating because this is a chapter, uh, it may well be, some, some call it the only chapter in the Bible that we know for sure that was written by a woman. And it's, it's written by a woman for her son in order to teach him the wisdom on how to be a wise king. And it's really interesting, the first several verses describe basic things about a uh, uh, you know, uh, about a king and how he is to be wise. But then, and it's probably connected. Some will make it, diff, you know, disconnect it. But the famous, uh, you know, Proverbs 31 woman, the virtuous wife, this is probably written by a woman. It's probably uh, Lemuel's mother who continues to write that. She writes that whole chapter probably, but that's debated. We don't know for sure. And so some will call that poem anonymous unless you tie it back to verse one and it's still his mother speaking. All right, but the point is, it's uh, possibly a continuation of, of her, or it's penned by Solomon as a final lesson as his son grows to manhood. But it's interesting, this is a very elaborate section. It's an acrostic. It's built upon the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, each verse beginning with a succeeding letter. Uh, and the picture here is of the ideal wife. And it shows what, uh, that the women of the day did not occupy the degraded place which is sometimes assumed. I'll talk about it when we get there. 
but there's an enormous amount of misinformation when it comes to this, right? The rise of feminism uh, in, in modern history tries to make the Bible the bad guy, that the Bible is the source of all oppression for women. That is so wrong. It is so wrong. And so I, I just, you know, we'll talk about that when we get there, but that's, you know, I got to be in my bonnet about that issue. And so anyways, uh, but this is a very helpful part about that. All right, so let me talk through just a couple more concepts and we'll wrap it up for today. I want you to just contemplate the practicality of Proverbs with me for just a moment. All right, as I said before, the subtitle to our, our study is skillful living or skill in living because that's what Proverbs is all about. Proverbs deals with skillful living in all areas of life and thus serves as one of the most practically helpful books of the Bible. Uh, this is why so many for so long have recommended reading a proverb a day, right? Read a chapter out of Proverbs every single day. Uh, it will, it'll change your life. And the reason for this is because chapter 8 informs us that the world was made by wisdom. So those who follow wisdom will find that the world fits, right? And it fosters their efforts. In other words, if you live life the way God designed it, then life works, but if you go against the grain of God's design, you're not only a fool, but it will result in folly in your life. It'll ruin your life. So these wise or witty sayings work, right? That's what, as, as Charles Martin puts it, these wise and witty sayings work. They work because that is the way the Lord has set things up. Proverbs is the scrapbook, as he calls it, of common grace, End quote. I love that. It's the scrapbook of common grace. In other words, the, all truth is God's truth. And even unbelievers find immense help and practicality from the book of Proverbs because it's so clearly, uh, it's so you know, easy to understand and it's so clearly true. And so it's, it's very helpful in that regard. And so this is some of what we'll be talking about in weeks and months to come. But the book of Proverbs addresses uh, issues, and eh, it crashed on me, but the book of Proverbs addresses issues ranging from marriage, sexual ethics, uh, parenthood. We'll, uh, we'll talk about both mother and father, both of which are addressed very frequently in the book. Uh, I, I just finished putting together my sermon on the sluggard, right? Aren't you glad that we're going to talk about that? Can't you? You can't wait for the sluggard sermon, can you, right? Uh, but it'll talk about work ethic. It'll talk about business ethics. It'll talk about prioritizing your life, managing time. There's a, uh, I just put together one on friendship. The book of Proverbs is going to deal immensely helpful in the area of friendship. Uh, in other words, how do you have good friends? What are good friends? Uh, how do you avoid evil friends? How can you tell the difference between a good friend and a bad friend? Uh, immensely helpful. I, and let me just end with this. Like I said, I, I have dozens, uh, if more than that, hundreds perhaps, of illustrations in, from my own life. And that's what I mean. Like I want, as we work our way through, you guys to, you know, just as, you, as, as some of you already have, say, hey, that makes me think of this, or that makes me think of this. Share those illustrations. But for me, you know, when I was in college, as Andrew, you know this, right? I was an RA, right? Resident assistant. It means I was in charge of, of a floor on the dorm. Uh, and so I had lots of students, you know, that I was over them and, you know, to some degree, and they would often come to me for, you know, just counsel, talk, questions, etc. And I can't tell you how many times I just took them to the book of Proverbs. And I mean, I just immersed myself in that book and questions about everything, 
right? I mean, the questions, because I mean, this is the big one, right? Guys in college are always like, there's this girl that I really like, right? And I don't know if she likes me back. And, you know, and they, and they go in and they, so they start asking relationship advice. Where's the relationship advice that I give them? Book of Proverbs. Some of them come with an ethical dilemma. They say, well, man, if I cheat, I'll pass my class. If I don't pass my class, I'll go into debt. I, you know, I, 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 and then I got to sit out all next semester. What do I do? Oh, that's an ethical dilemma. Guess what? Proverbs tells you what to do, right? Don't cheat. <laughs> but I, you know, I mean, all sorts of stuff. People would come with questions and it has just continued on. There was one kid that I worked with uh, who was, uh, you know, I'll end with this, but he was, he, was, he was the most socially awkward individual I've ever met, all right? Um, and I've met my fair share of awkwardly social individuals. But, you know, he, he just didn't know how to make friends. He was so awkward. And he didn't know how to keep friends. He didn't know how to be friendly. And he would just bumble over himself in every single conversation. And he was wounded by this. He was burdened by it. And he was like, Jeff, he's like, I, I just, and he, you know, I, he'd talk to me because I was the only guy that treated him like a normal individual. Every, everybody else just thought he was so stupid and so weird. They just, you know, everyone give him a wide berth and stay away from him. But, you know, he came to me, he says, Jeff, I just need, I need help. So what do I do? Well, just so happened that God in his providence, you know, just my reading of the book of Proverbs, I had just compiled a list from Proverbs chapter 25 on social cues. And I was like, Let's sit down. Let me show you what Proverbs says on how to act in a group situation so you don't look like an idiot. And I mean, it was like, oh, it changed his life. You should have seen his eyes light up. He's like, well, the Bible talks about that? I'm like, yeah, it talks about that. It's amazing. So the point is, the book of Proverbs is so helpful. It's so practical. Like I said, there's, there's not a subject that, in the, that is not in some way, shape, or form, whether by statement or by principle, approached in this book, that is dealt with by this book. And so our, our search of it is going to be, hopefully, you know, reflecting that and very practical week in and week out as we work our way through the book, all right? So I'm out of time. We've got to shut it down for today. But let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his blessing upon our study of this marvelous portion of Scripture. Let's pray. Father... Thank you so much for the time today. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your people. Thank you for the book of Proverbs that has been so immensely helpful to my life personally, that has changed me in so many ways that I look to constantly attempting to gain greater wisdom and insight on how to deal with situations, how to, Lord, know the, the difference between right and wrong and ethical dilemmas, etc. Lord, we need your help but we are so grateful that you have given to us your truth in this form. So we pray, Lord, in weeks and months to come as we study this, this wonderful section of the Bible, that you would help us to understand it. And not merely to understand it, but to apply it, to live it, to start evidencing this sort of wisdom and skill in our everyday choices, in our lives. And Lord, help us. Help us to take this very seriously. We'll only get out of it what we put into it. May we listen carefully, take good notes, read the book of Proverbs on our own. May this class merely prompt a desire and an appetite to get into the book and study it further, to study it aggressively on our own so that we might become wise in our living and honor and glorify you. So Lord, we pray for your help. We pray for your guidance. Spirit of God, give us your grace and illuminating insight, we pray. And help us, Lord, to live it. 
all for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.